Welcome to Coffee and Change. I'm Bill Kirst. As a business professional, a U.S. veteran, a lifelong learner, and an active listener, I help others navigate, understand, and adapt to our ever-changing workplace and world. As a third culture kid, I call many places home. Presently, Seattle is where I explore my creativity through the power of words and images. In this podcast, we journey with our guests, gaining knowledge and inspiration from their stories. Welcome to the 2023 season of Coffee and Change, the podcast. I'm excited for the lineup of guests that we have this year. And to launch this season, I can't think of a better guest than a fellow veteran and a personal hero of mine. You can imagine when I reached out and this guest said yes, I was over the moon. Bringing his insights and conversation from out of this world, I was proud to welcome retired Captain and Commander Scott Kelly. Enjoy the conversation. So my guest today is a former military fighter pilot and test pilot, an engineer, a retired astronaut, and a retired U.S. Navy captain, a veteran of four space flights who has commanded the International Space Station on three expeditions and was a member of the year-long mission to the ISS. In October 2015, he set the record for the total accumulated number of days spent in space, the single longest space mission by an American astronaut. I'm honored to welcome Scott Kelly to the podcast. Welcome, sir. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I'd love to um, just kind of start off by saying you're the first person I've had the opportunity to meet and speak with that's been off the planet. And while we did exchange a tweet or two while you were on the International Space Station, and I did get to shake your hand when you were in Seattle and gave a speech, uh, it's it's certainly an honor to talk with you today um, and welcome you to the podcast. Um, I'd love to I remember, start... sorry, go ahead. I remember both of those. Do you? <laughs> no, actually, I don't. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, the AMA was the ask me anything. Um, that was, what was your question? My question, my question had to do with whether or not people on the space station can get a cold from another member on the space station. And I don't know if you remember your response. Um, it was probably something like, yeah, it's possible, but we do have a quarantine protocol beforehand that tries to eliminate getting cold. So exactly that, that, uh, that was the answer. Um, and then when I had the opportunity to meet you in person in Seattle, uh, and shake your hand and thank you for the speech and, and the, the book signing, uh, I actually got to speak a little Russian with you too. So I, I spent four years uh, in Moscow in, in high school. So I got to, uh, have a little uh, Russian uh, conversation with you briefly. <laughs> Are you enjoying my Russian tweets? Um, I am actually, yeah. <laughs> uh, my Russian is my Russian is not as good as it appears in my tweets. Gotcha. Well, I mean, there's there's a uh, there's um, 
always translators to help us with that. Um, but no, I'd, I'd love to just start off with kind of a, a big, expansive uh, question, if you if you don't mm-hmm. mind starting there. Um, obviously, uh, you know, the when you returned from space after, you know, over 500 days total in space, um, I'm curious now, you know, as you look back on it, having returned, having retired, um, how do you think you've changed since returning to the planet? Um, you know, I think the experience, uh, and I, I would say the longer you're in space, I think the more the planet has the ability to kind of imprint this upon you. But when you have a lot of opportunities to uh, look out at the earth, I think you more appreciate the fragility of our environment, our atmosphere. Um, you notice that there are, you know, certain parts of the planet, uh, even from that distance that look like they're having um, issues with, you know, pollution and weird weather patterns, uh, you know, clearing of the rainforest mm-hmm. in South America is noticeable. So I think it makes you, uh, you know, the longer time you spend in space, the more evident that becomes. And it makes you more, I think, environmentally aware um, but also you look at a planet <clears throat> from space and you don't see any political borders. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you really don't see much difference in countries with the exception of, you know, where, you know, the terrain, you, you can't tell the difference between cultures and people and governments. And it just kind of gives you this sense that as a, uh, you know, civilization, we're all in this thing we refer to as humanity together. Um, so I think it makes you more, um, of a, you know, uh, a humanitarian conscience, conscious person mm-hmm. as well like for those types of, of issues. Um, and you also appreciate the fact that you're have this incredible opportunity and privilege to do something extraordinary and, uh, um, and, and the fact that it's your job makes it even better because what, uh, what better uh, experience to have? Like it, the most incredible experiences I've ever had were all funded by the U.S. government, right. and not myself paying for a vacation. So I, and I, I don't that I never lose uh, awareness of of that. Yeah, and so I always want to thank the American taxpayers for supporting the space program because it's important, but also a little bit because. I was privileged to take part in it. Well, and I think the American taxpayers would thank you for your service primarily. And then I think everybody in humanity would thank you for, you know, your service to the planet. I'm curious, there was one uh, uh, Instagram post that you posted when you got back that really stuck out to me. And that was your first rainfall when you were back on Earth. Um, And you were so joyous in that moment because it felt so good to have (laughs) rain on your skin again. Um, You talked a little bit about the environment and, and obviously the planet. Have you have you looked at things like rain and snow and and all of that just so differently now that you've been that you've been back and you don't take those things for granted? You know, I, I definitely appreciate uh, like nature more than I used to. I don't know if that's has if that has more to do with my space flight or is it more related to just the fact that I don't have this intensity of a job mm-hmm. that I used to. Mm-hmm. I mean, from the I'm basically, I graduated from high school. Um, most of my f- 
focus and attention has been related to my work, whether it was as a fighter pilot or as a test pilot or as a NASA astronaut. And, um, you know, now I think I, I just have a much more, um, uh, strong appreciation for, uh, nature and, and spending time in, in nature, but I can't say for certain whether that has to do with flying off the planet or just having more time to enjoy it and pay attention to it. I also, you know, moved to Colorado mm -hmm. and it's, hard. um, I think it would be hard to anyone not to be, uh, completely in awe of this, uh, planet when you live in a place like this. Yeah, awe is a good word. Um, I reside in the Pacific Northwest, and there's many, many times I have moments of awe, um, you know, in, in yeah. the Cascades and the, the Olympics. It is absolutely beautiful. And you get, some, you get you get some good rain up there. We don't get as much rain here where I live. We but. do. We're, we're in the throes of um, kind of the atmospheric river that's been hitting the West Coast, as you know. Um, yeah. And, and so that's kind of coming up this way. But it is still uh, a beautiful yeah. place to live. Yeah, you guys must have like mixed feelings about that. On one hand, you know, it's good for a drought. Mm -hmm. It's unfortunate we can't just capture all that water, right? Exactly. That would be there was a scenario. There was somebody but talking the about other that hand. the other day saying, I wish we could just bottle this up for when we need it. Um, you know, we had yeah. last summer here. Um, there were days when <clears throat> the smoke was so bad it was it was rated the most uh, dangerous place to breathe on the planet um, uh, on a couple of days. And, and that's unheard of up here in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. And I know you've had similar things in Colorado this past summer. So as we think yeah. about, you know, and I loved how you said that, you know, the appreciation of borderless, right? Looking down at the planet and not seeing borders. One of the things I've always been curious about, uh, watching not only your, um, you know, your expedition, your path, but obviously the stuff that SpaceX is doing and Bezos is doing, I was always curious to think like, imagine if we took politicians up, um, if we could take all the politicians up and have them stare back at what you saw. Um, mm -hmm. I wonder if they might make decisions differently after that, um, if only. Interestingly enough, my, uh, my year in space crewmate, uh, Misha Kornienko said to us one, said to me one time, he says, towards the end of our year long mission, he says, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great if we could send our two presidents into space, which at the time was uh, Obama and Putin, um, two presidents into space for a year together, that would solve all of our problems. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if it would solve all of our problems, but it would certainly, um, you know, make great strides towards uh, cooperation uh, between individuals and on the ground versus just the cooperation we have with Russia in space. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I, I can't help but think the same thing. Um, I'm curious, there was a news article that came out yesterday about the James Webb t uh, Space Telescope discovering an exoplanet. And this kind of prompted my, my next question. You know, as we think about reaching further and seeing further, um, if you could make a change in the way that space exploration happens, and let's, let's put aside budget limitations you get to decide space policy. Where would you take us uh, and who would you take on that? Well, you you kind of uh, affected my answer by saying with the exception of budget, but mm -hmm. let me just talk about that for a second. I'm not talking about more or less money. What I would say is what NASA needs is consistent funding 
and consistent uh, planning and execution. Uh, NASA oftentimes, despite being uh, supported in a very bipartisan fashion, is subject to changes of uh, in Congress and the administration um, where you have one plan, one president, and then a new president shows up and you get a new plan and a new um, direction. Uh, kudos to the Biden administration for probably being the first uh, presidential administration in a long, long time. Um, I don't even know when, but to recognize the fact that that is not a, um, a uh, efficient uh, way to operate if you want to really get stuff done. So he basically stayed the course with what uh, any, you know, course changes Trump had made, which were not a whole lot, actually. I mean, despite what, um, you know, the previous administration would say about NASA being dead and all of a sudden taking um, taking uh, credit for stuff that happened on their watch. The reality of it is, is most of that stuff was already happening and, and uh, planned, uh, you know, years in advance. And uh, they just happened to be sitting in the chair when it occurred. So, but um, yeah, that's one thing I would change is to have a budget that uh, was uh, maybe 10 years. Mm -hmm. You lock in a, a NASA budget and a plan. And then that would allow us to execute um, much more efficiently, uh, much more economically, um, and, and get stuff done. I think the current course we are on is very, very... Um, exciting. It's very encouraging. Um, I'm not uh, privy to a lot of the technical details and the, and the risks and the challenges of what we're trying to do right now. But I think, you know, having a, a building a rocket that can launch people to the moon and, um, you know, certainly we have a lot of work in front of us, but the gateway um, type space station that would be crewed um, at certain times that is in a, a specific lunar orbit um, is a plan that I think is is executable. And I think it's uh, what we should be doing if we really want to go to Mars someday. So I'm, I'm excited. NASA has had some incredible successes this past year. Um, really amazing, um, you know, testament to the, the hard work and perseverance of the um, the employees and contractors and everyone involved. So um, I think NASA's got um, the future is very bright and I think they're on a, on a great course. Yeah, it does look very exciting. And I think your, your point around around the budget not being disrupted and, you know, rejiggered every time is, is a good one. Um, you know, you describe in your memoir, uh, Endurance, which, by the way, was an incredible read and an incredible listen. So I, I listened to the audio book, too, um, and uh, and it, it just I'll tell you what, so much to life. Yeah. You write a book and you got to read it like 10 times while you're writing it and the whole editing process. And then you are asked to do the audio book and you don't really realize now I'm going to have to read it like another maybe five or six times. It's torturous, but I'm glad you liked it. I did enjoy it. Um, I can I imagine it's it's a challenging experience to to have to re read it and read it and read it many times in many takes. But uh, it was an incredible lesson and an incredible read. So in that memoir, you talk a lot about um, each day in space is pretty busy, right? There's not much downtime. Yeah. And 
you live by checklists and some of these checklists are as long as your arm and, and, and your leg. Um, and, and it takes, like you said, when you were on your first, uh, I think on your first shuttle flight, you didn't look out the window. And so my question has, has a little bit to do with almost like code switching. If you think about your time on the space station, you obviously had a lot you had to do by checklist. And then there were moments where you turned around, looked out the window, pointed the camera to these incredible images, captured those images and sent them back to us on earth. Talk about awe. So my question is, how did you switch between those moments of automatic and awe? Well, when you say I didn't look out the window, I didn't look out the window during launch, uh, you know, because there's a lot of tension and responsibility there. And it really is just natural uh, based on my training in the military and at NASA to, you know, be able to compartmentalize, which means, you know, focusing on the stuff that we have control over in our lives and ignore the stuff that we don't, that's going to happen regardless of whether we're paying attention or what we're doing. Uh, so I think in the case of, uh, of launch, certainly there's compartmentalization there, but also uh, looking out the window and appreciating the awe of this planet and its beauty and, uh, and being able to appreciate it, but then very quickly getting back to work and, uh, and you know, focusing on what is uh, the here and now in the moment, what is important, what I should be um, doing, uh, especially when it's a critical activity. You know, there's certain things we do in space that if you mess it up, it's not a big deal. But then there are other things that if you mess it up, you blow up the space shuttle, you kill yourself and your crew, you can destroy, you know, multi-million dollar pieces of hardware, you can make mistakes that might, you know, cause the loss of life of your your crewmates or yourself or ruin somebody's science experiment that they've been working on their whole lives. So um, I think having the ability to compartmentalize and focus, but also prioritize, you know, understanding, hey, this is something that I really cannot mess up ever and being able to execute uh, with uh, zero errors is, is something that is, uh, I think, just critical to flying in space. Was it ever psychologically challenging to have that, you know, you're constantly having a conversation with mortality, for one, and then you're also having these moments of, of awe and appreciation. Was that ever taxing? Or, or you, like you said, it's just a compartmentalization thing and you just go until you, maybe until you got back on the ground and it all caught up with you? Well, you know, every, every person's different. I can only speak for myself. Uh, I would imagine there are people out there that, you know, may, may have had issues with the, the highs and lows of, of space flight and the, uh, the, the, the risk uh, and the, the, the tedium of it at times. Um, but for me, I think I was able to manage that fairly well. I, uh, uh, you know, never really felt like depressed in any kind of clinical way or, um, you know, even though there are things you miss uh, that are on earth, which as we know, just about everything that's important to us is on Earth, unless you're maybe an astronomer, mm -hmm. <laughs> which I am not. But uh, the uh, you're able to, I think, rationalize that pretty well. That you know, despite the challenges, despite the difficulties, despite everything I miss, I will be home someday. And when that happens, then those things will just be more, even better. Yeah. 
I mean, it was interesting because you talked a little bit in a previous interview that I listened to about how rather than think about it as a year, you thought about it in weak chunks. And I'm curious, you know, we all have those days where we, we want to quit, we want to pack it in and head home. You didn't have that option per se. How did you handle those moments in the span of those days when you were in space for a year? You know, I found that the, uh, the days kind of flew by because mm-hmm. we were always, whenever I was on the space station, we were always had seemed to have too much work than we could handle. Or maybe it was normal work and I just couldn't handle it. I don't know. Sometimes crews seem a little bit, uh, at times, a little bit less uh, scheduled. And that has to do with like the supply chain, the traffic flow, when experiments or hardware is available, maybe a rocket gets delayed and you had all this science you're going to do and then it doesn't show up until after you've left. Uh, but for me, we've, we've always been very busy. So I found that the days went by quick. The weeks just dragged on. But what I, I made a point not to do is to count down my time left. I tried to never, ever think about it. And I actually tried to keep track of the time I had been there almost as a measure of uh, uh, achievement, like I was collecting something valuable, a valuable experience. So, um, and you could go the other way very easily. My Russian colleague kind of did that early on where uh, even though we were going to be there the whole time together, I was always looking forward in a positive way. And he was always looking forward in a, oftentimes a negative way, like trying to, you know, how many days do we have left? When is this going to be over? I was always looking to the next, you know, significant like work milestone and not the end Yeah. until one day he asked me, uh, Misha says, do you know what day it is today? And I said, my birthday? Cause it was. And he says, yeah, I know it's your birthday, but not that. I said, well, what? He goes, well, we have 10 days left. And then I started counting down the days. Yeah. Cause he would remind me every morning, nine, eight. <laughs> I'm so happy he didn't do that for an entire year. Yeah. Well, and you have, a- I think he did it. He, yeah, he, he did that for himself. Yeah, I, I, I suspect. Yeah. And you have a birthday coming up in February. So happy, uh, happy early birthday. Um, the that kind of reminds me a little bit of, uh, you know, as you think about your life in chapters. Um, and I, I think often a little bit when I when I think about the chapter that you completed when you came back to Earth. I'm curious if it ever felt a little bit like, you know, we know athletes when they finish um, a huge milestone, like an Olympic event, or they finish their career and they kind of come off the field for the last time. Um, Obviously, you go on for purpose, but how did you realign your purpose knowing that, hey, I'm not going to go back to space? Unless you are. I mean, you might, you could surprise us. (laughs) No, I won't. I probably won't. I mean, certainly there are, are some opportunities out there to do that. Um, I would imagine if someone approached me with a, uh, a, a reason why it made sense for me to do it, I would certainly consider it. I'm sure I would enjoy it. Um, but there are many other people that are, you know, qualified, maybe even more qualified than I am now to do this kind of job. So, uh, I don't expect that to happen. Um, 
you know, I got other things I'm, I'm, I'm doing, but uh, I certainly recognize that once I left NASA, I would never have as uh, uh, meaningful or, uh, or important or enjoyable job again as I did in my 20 years there. Um, so, you know, it's important, though, to still find, you know, meaning in your life and do stuff that you enjoy. I haven't retired um, yet, um, so I still stay involved and engaged in different things. Yeah, I think the the um no sorry, it's doing a picture on I don't know why it's doing that squad shot. <laughs> um the the other question I had for you was around your relationship with humor. You talk a little bit in the memoir about um how humor is almost a universal language, right? When you're working with the different cosmonauts and astronauts across the International Space Station. Obviously, time is regimented. You're doing a lot of things, but there were these really beautiful exchanges of humor. And so I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about how humor works in space. And I believe it's a universal language. Um, I think you've demonstrated that. Would just love for you to expound upon that a little bit. Yeah, um, never quite thought about that um, most questions that people ask me, I've answered many times before, as you might be able to tell. Um, but uh, yeah, um, you know, humor is certainly important to me. When I when I give a talk, I think uh, that uh, you know, if I put a little bit more effort into this, maybe I could s turn it into a Netflix stand-up comedy routine. But uh, no offense to real comedians, uh, and I'm sure I couldn't do that. But I. I fantasize about it occasionally because I know that is a, a unique skill. Um, no, I think, you know, humor is part of our lives and it's part of our lives on the ground. It's part of mine. I enjoy uh, a good joke or I don't, I'm not really a, a tell a real joke kind of guy. I'm more of a dry sense of humor, observational um, kind of person, which absolutely translates into space. I think anytime you're doing something challenging, and it's something that's hard, um, whether it's physically hard, mentally, emotionally, there are many opportunities for some good humor um, and uh, not the ice cream good humor that I grew up with, but some, um, yeah, some good jokes, which we often had opportunities to laugh a lot on the space station. Yeah, like the gorilla suit or the, you know, little jokes that, that were played. Um, I imagine those little brevity. People do not realize that that gorilla suit was actually a, a, an experiment. Was it really? Yeah, it was an experiment to see if NASA had a sense of humor. <laughs> and, and did they? They, they did, sort of. <laughs> they sort of did. Yeah. Um, yeah, um, it, it was funny. The chief of the astronaut office at the time, after I, well, to, for your audience, uh, they may not know this, but my brother, my twin brother, Mark, is also an astronaut. One day he's on the ground and, and I'm in space for that nearly year long mission. And he says to me, he goes, he goes, I'm sending you a gorilla suit. And I said, why? And he says, well, there's never been a gorilla suit in space before and it needs a gorilla suit. So I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. I was busy. And then the SpaceX with the gorilla suit launches and uh, it blows up. 
uh, and um, the next time I talked to him, which was probably the next day, the first thing he says to me is, I'm sending you another gorilla suit. <laughs> so it finally gets there. It's there for, I don't know, months getting towards the end of my mission. He's like, hey, did you get use the gorilla suit yet? And I'm like, no, I was busy. I didn't have time. And he like asked me a few times about it. So I dug it out. I put it on. I did this funny video chasing one of our crew members around. And then um, thinking we would just have it as a personal thing, sent it to the ground. And then for some reason, my brother, twin brother, decides to send it to like NBC News or something. <laughs> but the day it was on the news, this is funny. The chief of the astronaut office calls me and he says, or he, he can't call you. You have to call them. Right. So he sends me an email. He's like, he's like, hey, uh, give me a call when you get a moment. And I'm like, oh, crap. I think I know what this is all about. So I get some time later in the day and I call him. I say, uh, hey, uh, how's it going? He goes, good. He goes, he says, he goes, I, uh, he goes, I saw that gorilla suit video. And I'm like, yeah. He's like, so what else is going on up there? How you guys doing? Anything new? Everything okay at home? Like we had a completely transition to a completely different conversation. So it was just funny that he was told to talk to me about the gorilla suit. So he did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody had a problem with it. Yeah, somebody noticed it. Um What's the, what's the, I'm just curious, obviously your twin brother, Mark can probably just walk up to a SpaceX and say, Hey, can you put this on the next container? How does that work? Yeah. You know, my brothers, who's now a U.S. Senator from Arizona sometimes gets accused of smuggling stuff to space. Um, meaning the gorilla suit, which is not true. That gorilla suit was turned over to NASA, they examined it, they vetted it, they used it as packing material that if it wasn't, uh, if that gorilla suit didn't launch, they would have launched some foam yeah. in its place. So it's not like it cost anything. It was not smuggled to the space station. It was sent up by uh, NASA fully approved. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, could have could someone else have done the same thing probably you know people that were authorized to send stuff to me in space uh get together you know crew care packages basically on every uh every cargo vehicle they'll send you about like a you know a backpack size full of of personal stuff you know some of us might be little toys or something or little gifts um you know clothing, whatever, yeah. you know, they can pretty much anything they want, as long as it meets the, uh, like specific, like, uh, materials, mm -hmm. uh, requirements with regards to probably, you know, flammability, off gassing, uh, there's certain items you can't send, like, uh, you can't send like sports memorabilia is not allowed. Currency is not allowed, oh, really? you know, stuff that would have an immediate, like increase in value After it. as a result. Mm -hmm after it came back yeah. yeah interesting it's i mean there's so much i learned about the way those those payloads are packed right when in, in your memoir you talked about how nothing that goes up 
you know, you don't want, like, you got to fill every space, right? To your point around foam and the gorilla suit and everything else, everything is packed in, in a certain way. That was something that was really interesting to learn because it costs a lot to get stuff up there, right? It's not like the ship that's yeah. waiting off the port of Seattle with something that you yeah. ordered. Um, so that was, that was uh, extremely educational. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Last couple questions for you. Um, I'd love to shift gears uh, and talk about the work that you're doing to support Ukraine. You're working with um, an organization called United 24, and mm-hmm. um, it's close to your heart for, for a couple of reasons. I would love for you to talk about that as well as some of the, the different ways that you're supporting Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. Yes. Yeah, so uh, from the very beginning of Putin's invasion, I got involved in this personally for a number of reasons. Uh, you know, one is I have some Ukrainian American family members. Uh, I have Ukrainian American friends. I have Russian friends, you know, that are certainly not going to suffer like the Ukrainians have in this. But, you know, some of them are, are good people feel uh, have the right opinion about this. And, uh, you know, their lives are going to be affected too, perhaps in a very dramatic way. Um, so it was personal to me for those reasons. But also, you know, I'm a big believer in, um, you know, freedom and democracy. I think it's the most important thing that we have. Because once you lose that, you lose the ability to control your lives and do what you want, clearly. Uh, that, I think that's pretty obvious. Um, you know, live your life how, how you want. And uh, an invasion of uh, a European emerging democracy, emerging economy in Europe is not only a threat to the Ukrainian people, but also a threat to democracies around the world, especially when it's, um, uh, you know, executed in the way um, that Russia has the ability to do it. It's just a, a threat to not only Europe, but our, our freedom as well. So I got involved, um, you know, initially just kind of as, uh, you know, an advocate uh, for, I think, my beliefs with what regards what is right about this. And then the head of the Russian Space Agency started just tweeting out this ridiculous things, mm-hmm. uh, threatening to leave American crew members behind in space. And um, I felt... Uh, with the um, uh, social media following I had, I felt if I spoke up about it, people would get the message. And uh, so I got into what would people would describe as a, uh, I don't know, a Twitter spat or war or whatever. Um, and uh, with this guy, Dmitry Rogozin, who used to be the head of Roscosmos, uh, and that went back and forth. I returned my medal that the Russians gave me for my service uh, with the Russian Space Agency as an American crew member on the space station. Uh, and I just kept at my advocacy. I um, sold a bunch of NFTs with right before the NFT market crashed actually, and uh, raised almost half a million dollars. And I sent it to this organization called the Global Empowerment Mission that does incredible work um, uh, providing humanitarian supplies to disasters around the world, but they have a pretty big footprint now in Ukraine. Uh, Only 10% of their 
uh, money goes to administrative costs, mm -hmm. 90%, everything else is food and other kind of humanitarian supplies, medical stuff. And uh, so I did that. And I, I think that just got a, attention from, you know, certain people in the Ukrainian government, and they were trying to do their own more kind of centralized, very organized fundraising for specific things. And they sent me an email, I don't know, probably about three months ago. And they said, Hey, would President Zelensky would like to ask you to be one of our uh, fundraising ambassadors for United 24. And I had never heard of the organization. So I quickly did some research. And with about five minutes, I said, you know, absolutely. And then as President Zelensky put it, he says, you know, not only did he like my advocacy and my, my fundraising, but he also liked how I trolled a specific uh, Russian propagandist into oblivion. And I said, you know, I don't think it's really trolling. I look at it more as like being a social media warrior. Yeah. <laughs> trolling has got sort of negative connotation to it. But uh, I, I had never done anything like that on, on Twitter. Uh, it's kind of new to me. I tend to not get into spats with people, even if it's like Elon Musk coming at me or, or Rudy Giuliani. I tend to, you know, ignore these direct confrontations, but, um, they happen sometimes. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I appreciate you, uh, kind of walking us through, through that. And one of the things I'll do is I'll make sure to put a link in show notes so that people can find that campaign and continue to support yeah, it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a donor box link with my name to it. Great. It's like donorbox.org forward slash Scott Kelly. Okay, great. Well, we'll include Simple. that. Um, and then this yeah. last last set of questions here is going to be really quick, and it's it's from the next generation. I know you care greatly about children. You've written a couple of early readers' books, right? There's a, there's a young readers' edition of your memoir. There's the children's book. So these couple of questions came in from my nephew, who's a teenager. He was super excited when he found out I was going to talk to you this week. So uh, these are a few of his questions that he wanted me to ask you. How well can you see stars from space? Is there light pollution in space? Yeah, there's a lot of light pollution. One one is the sun. It's huge. It's like the brightest thing you've ever seen. <laughs> Brighter than when you're on Earth. So when you're on the sunlit side of the Earth, well, first of all, you can't even look even near the sun. It's just too bright. But when you're on that side of the Earth, the sky does not really appear black. It's more like a grayish, kind of hard to describe. Maybe like a light black or something. It has a different color than when you're, or different appearance than when you're on the earth or the shadow side of the earth you know so no you can't see stars all the time uh if you're in sunlight you will not see, you don't see stars mm -hmm. which is interesting because if you were like as an example on your way to mars you would look out the window you probably wouldn't see much of anything because mm -hmm. the sun's just too bright right um but when you're on the dark side of the earth uh you see stars now it depends on a few things it depends on where the moon is. So if the moon is now over on that side of the earth with you and it has some illumination, that affects your ability to see the stars. Um, city lights have an ability, but if, if there's no moon, if you're over the Pacific Ocean as an example, and if let's say the Milky Way is in your field of view, the center of the Milky Way galaxy, if it's risen or hasn't set yet, the stars are absolutely 
spectacular, breathtaking. Now you have to let your eyes adjust to the darkness. So if you just happen to glance out the window, you're not going to see much. But if you turn all the lights off in the module, like with the cupola in it, let your eyes adjust. Those conditions are right. It is just absolutely breathtaking. Sounds amazing. Oh, what a dream that would be. Um, his next question, is there any space food or meal that you miss? We had a, there's two things. There's two things I would probably eat on earth that we had in space. One is we had this breakfast granola thing that was this just dehydrated granola with milk. That was very good. I would eat that for breakfast here. Um, and I've never found any like an equivalent in the grocery store. Uh, and then we had this irradiated barbecued beef mm. that on a tortilla with hot sauce is pretty good. It's the meat's not the greatest in that um, you given the choice between like fresh barbecue and this, you would never choose that, but it, it was, it was pretty good. And I kind of, sometimes I feel like I miss it a little bit. Do you remember the beef mac and cheese meals ready to eat the MREs? Did you ever have those? You know, I was in the Navy, so we didn't. You got better food than we did. <laughs> yeah, we had a mess hall, you know, we had the, you could get the double, you know, the double, what do they call it? The, the, the slider, which is a hamburger, and then you get it with the egg on it, mm -hmm. you know, the cheeseburger. And then they had this stuff called auto dog, which is basically, you know, like ice cream. <laughs> which, yeah. So there is some good food. The food on the ship, though, in the aircraft carrier is funny because in the beginning of the, you go on like a six month cruise. And in the beginning of the cruise, the salad bar is like really good. Mm -hmm. And then after, you know, three months or so, you notice that in place of lettuce, there's like cabbage starting to be mixed in. And then by the end of the career, it's all cabbage yeah. as, as if you wouldn't notice. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I had similar uh, similar experience when I lived in Poland and Russia. It's very hard to find lettuce, lots of cabbage. Um, yeah. His last question, do you ever dream of space now when you're dreaming on Earth? Good question. Um, rarely do I. But sometimes I have very vivid dreams about space. Um, but maybe like, and I'm a pretty good, like kind of, I wouldn't say vivid dreamer, but sometimes I have some vivid dreams. Um, and I remember them because when I flew my first flight that was six months, I, uh, when I got back before my year long mission, the psychiatrist, psychologist guys, they said, did you ever dream in space? And I was like, yeah. And they were like, well, what did you dream? And I was like, I don't remember. So when I flew this year long flight, every time I would wake up, I would immediately, the computer's right in front of mm -hmm. you. So your keyboard as you're sleeping is right in front of you. So I'd wake up, I'd hit a key, I'd wake the computer up, I'd open up the Word document and I would write down my dreams. And in my memoir, Endurance, every chapter that takes place in the present, which is on the during the mission, uh, starts off with a dream that I had. Uh, interestingly, when in the beginning of the mission, most of my space dreams were like earth dreams. And the longer I was there, they became kind of space dreams until I kind of got closer to coming home and they became like earth centric dreams again. But, uh, 
yeah, I rarely have a, a space dream, but sometimes I do. And sometimes, you know, maybe once or twice a year, they could be pretty cool, actually. Yeah, um, I imagine they are pretty cool. Um, and then one last question for me, and then we'll wrap up. Have you ever done the sensory deprivation saltwater floating on Earth? I have not. Okay. Is it any good? I love it. I swear by it. I mean, I used to go probably weekly before the pandemic. And they say it's, I mean, who's they, right? But some people say it's the closest that uh, you can feel, you know, being in, in no gravity and kind of that experience of being in space. It was super helpful for me in terms of anxiety and resting the mind and, you know, calming. Um, and it was, you know, the physical benefits were really great as well. Huh. I'll, I'll, I'll look into that. It's, I'll see what it's like. Uh, yeah, never, never done that. Yeah. Interesting. I read an article recently that there's this room that is like a sen sensory deprivation room mm -hmm. where there's zero sound. Basically if it's quiet, there's still like 20, I don't know, 20 or 30 DBs of background noise. doesn't matter where you are. Right. right? But this is like perfectly quiet and it's hard to find a person that can stay in there for like longer than an hour. Yeah. I find fascinating. I got to check this place. I out. would love, I would love to try that experiment. Um, cause that's one yeah. of the things I remember in your memoir too. You talked about how noisy the space station was, right? Like just the constant humming and yeah. the ticking and the grinding and all of that. Um, well, as a fellow veteran, I want to say thank you as a son of two Naval officers. I want to say thank you as a grandson of a Naval officer. I want to say thank you for your time. And uh, thanks for what you're doing for, for, for the planet, for humanity, for Ukrainians. Um, I really appreciate your time, Scott. And um, yeah, let us know how we can help. Thank you. Take it easy.